God has blessed us with some amazing musicians. You know, a few years ago, uh, whenever Beth first started coming here, uh, Easter Sunday arrived and she was sitting at the piano when I walked in here and I said, do you know the song, Was It a Morning Like This? Because that's a great Easter song. And that's what that song was, in case you don't know. But uh, she said, no, never heard it before. So I pulled out my iPod and I started to play it for her. And uh, she's just sitting there listening. And I didn't even play the whole song. I just played a little bit of the song. And she said, okay, I got it. And she started playing that song. It's not like, you know, a normal human would have done. Just started, <laughs> just started picking it out on the piano and, you know, trying to, no, just, she just started playing that song like she had known it all of her life. And uh, I'm just amazed. You kind of hate people like that, don't you? <laughs> Actually, no, I thank God for people like that. And God has gifted. Well, take your Bibles this morning. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to speak to you today on the subject, because of Christ, we are. We are. Romans chapter 8. We've been in this for a while. We'll be in it for a while yet. Today we'll start with verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Father God, I pray today that you will guide us and direct us as we think about this passage. Speak to our hearts. Fill me with your Spirit. Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit. This whole chapter is about the power of the Holy Spirit and how uh, we are so changed and empowered and enabled by His presence in our life. And so, Lord, I call upon Him today and ask that, Father, He would fill me and uh, fill us all, that we'd have ears to hear. And that you would just help this to be useful and helpful to all of us today. I pray, Father, for the Christians. This message is primarily directed at believers today. But I pray also, Lord, for those who might not know Christ, uh, that they would hear and understand the gospel through these things. And Lord, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope to be in this section of Romans chapter 8, I guess down to about verse number 31, for uh, the next three weeks. Because in this section, we're going to learn a little bit more about what it means to be justified by faith that he's been talking about so much. Romans chapter 8 is not so much new stuff. It's mostly review. It's mostly the same stuff that he's been talking about, summarized and uh, crystallized for us. Well, as I studied this little passage uh, from verses 12 down to verse number 30, three little words jumped out at me. And I kind of want to use those to uh, base our study over the next few weeks. The first of those words is the word are, A-R-E, if you're taking notes. The second is the word uh, know, and the third is the word have. I notice here that Paul describes some things that are now true of you and me uh, as believers. I notice that he also mentions some things that we now know. And he also gives a pretty good list of benefits and blessings that we have as a result of Christ's atoning sacrifice and the uh, influence of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. As a result. And so if the Lord allows, that's how we're going to break up our study over the next three weeks. Uh, 
here in Romans. We're going to notice some of the things that we are. We're going to notice some of the things that we know and some of the things that we have because we are blood washed, forgiven, regenerated, justified, and Holy Spirit indwelt believers. So let's notice today just that first word, some things that we are. And I would suggest that in just these, these verses I read today, verses 12 through 17, we see that we are, number one, obligated, number two, family, number three, heirs. Let's see if we can pull those three out of there and see if you see them along with me. Look, first of all, at verse number 12, and uh, let me suggest that we are obligated. Romans chapter 8, verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We are debtors. Now, if we were to stop reading right after that very first part of that verse, we would have no trouble concluding that we owe a debt. And all of us know what that means. We don't like that thought. We are debtors. But another way to say that is that we have an obligation. We are obligated. Now, every translation that I looked at states that obligation positively, just like that. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Therefore, we are obligated. It states it positively, but then it adds this negative, not to the flesh. And it makes it difficult, at least in my mind, it made it difficult for me to understand exactly what Paul was saying. The obvious thing that he was saying there, the obvious thing that jumps out, is that he was saying we are under no obligation to live according to the law in the flesh. And he's been talking about that all throughout, has he not? And so that would seem to be the obvious. But implied in that statement, there has to be the other side of the equation. We're not obligated, we're not debtors to the flesh, but we're plainly obligated to do something because he said it in the first few verses. We are debtors. So what is it we are obligated to do? I think that he kind of says it in the following verses, but I think we could also paraphrase his thinking and maybe make it clearer. Maybe we could read that verse like this. We are obligated to live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, that has both parts of it in there. And that's what he's talking about throughout this passage. We are obligated to live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, at first glance, because of the way Paul said it, we could miss his point. As Christians, we do have an obligation. We do have an obligation to live a certain way. We have an obligation to live for God. We have an obligation to live in such a way as glorifies the Savior. I know it's, it's popular that you, to, to, to hear people say that you can become a Christian without changing anything in your life. You've probably heard somebody say that before. It's popular to hear the sentiment, now, preacher, I don't want to hear any list of do's and don'ts. We hear that all the time. Books have been written about this. I know it's popular, and I know it's common, and I also know it's preached from some pulpits, but the sad fact is it's not true. It's not true. Paul has made it very, very plain here. Obeying a list of do's and don'ts won't save you in the first place. He's beat that drum all the way throughout the book up to this point. He has made it clear, and it's a theme of the book, that the just shall live by faith. That there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. We are saved by grace. Uh, by grace are you saved through faith, he told the Ephesians. That not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But once you are saved, Paul says here you are obligated. Paul says you're obligated to live a holy life. A life lived according to the Spirit. You are obligated to obey the list of do's and don'ts that are laid down in God's works. We are debtors. There is an obligation to not live according to the flesh, but rather to live according to the spirit. Verse number 13 says our obligation is to mortify or to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the spirit. 
And so our obligation now that we're justified and regenerated and made new and indwelt by the Spirit of God is to live according to that indwelling Spirit, to live for Christ with the help of and by the enabling of the Holy Spirit of God. And he said this before. We mentioned a few minutes ago that there's nothing really new in Romans 8. It's just a restatement of other things. He said it way back at the beginning of chapter 6 and verse number 1. Remember when he said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, Christians don't think like that. He said, may it never be. God forbid. Absolutely not. Christians are people who strive not to sin and strive rather to glorify God in the way they live. And so we are obligated to live a holy life. Now, I think we need to be clear. I think we need to think about this for a minute because uh, we could get a little bit astray here. There is a reason that we are so obligated. And that reason is because of what he did for us. It's not that we might earn our way to heaven. It is out of gratitude for what he did for us. Look at the last two verses of the previous section. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, where it says, If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then notice the very next word in verse number 12. What is that word? Therefore. Therefore. Now say it with me. What is the therefore, therefore? That's what we always ask when we see that word, is it not? And so, here that word is telling us why we are debtors. And and why is it saying we are debtors? Because of what just came right before it. Those two verses. It's saying because of the preceding truth. Timothy Keller makes this comment. He said, Paul means that if we remember what Christ has done and will do for us, we will feel the obligations of love and gratitude to serve and know him. We serve. We are obligated, not because we're trying to earn our way to heaven. We're obligated because of what he has done for us, because we're doing it out of gratitude, out of worship and out of love. Because of the glorious gift of the indwelling spirit, which he provides, we have this obligation to live a holy life that honors him. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and do something nice to you? And your response to them is, I owe you one. You ever do that? Or you ever had anybody do that to you? Those who listen to the sermons from this pulpit often know that the pastor is is somewhat of a Star Trek fan. Uh, Maybe a Star Trek nut. I don't know. The fact is, for theology, Star Trek is absolutely garbage. Don't get your theology from it. It's trash. It's terrible. But for entertainment, it's kind of hard to beat. And I, I, I confess that I like Star Trek. I remember one particular episode of the Star Trek The Next Generation TV series where Commander Riker saved a man from certain death. And the man's response was to walk over to Commander Riker and whisper in his ear, Commander, I am in your debt. Have you ever said something like that? Alexander Dumas wrote the book, classic fiction book entitled The Count of Monte Cristo. And a movie adaptation was made of that not too long ago starring Jim Caviezel. And there is a scene therein, and I mentioned this before, it's a, it's a wonderful illustration, but there's a scene therein where the Count of Monte Cristo, who is portrayed by, I always want to say the Count of Monte Cristo, and I have to stop myself. The Count of Monte Cristo, who is portrayed by Caviezel, he saves the life of a man. And this man's name is Jacobo. And Jacobo, in expressing his gratitude, grabs the Count and pulls him right down so his face is right in his. And he whispers right in his face, I am your man forever. You see, that's the motivation. 
That's the motivation that Paul is talking about here. It's not that we, we are obligated to serve. It's not that we're obligated to live a holy life because we're trying to get to heaven. We know that's impossible. Go back and read Romans chapter 3 if you still have any doubts about that. He's made it plain over and over. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is not a single one of us who can do it. And yet he says here that that's not the motivation. The motivation is we, we, we live a holy life out of gratitude, out of worship, out of love for the one who so loved us. And so I wonder this morning, have you meditated recently on all that Christ did for you? If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, He has delivered you from God's wrath. He has given you an entirely new nature. He has made you alive to spiritual things to which you were previously dead. He has assured you of a future home and a reward in heaven where you will live forever in a resurrected and perfected body. And how do we not say thank you for that? We sang that song this morning, 10,000 Reasons. It always makes me cry because it is so true. We have so many reasons to worship and serve Him. And so Paul's point is simple. We are indebted. We are obligated to live for him who did and does so much for us. We are obligated. Number two, look at verse 15. We are family. We are family. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So many different ways he says it in that particular passage that describes for us the fact that we are family. He uses words like sons and children and adoption and heirs. He's making it plain there is a family of God and those who are saved are part of it. There is a relationship that is possible between people and their creator. Christians are privileged to be in that relationship. We are family. From time to time when we take the Lord's Supper, uh, we, we are reminded of that. We remind ourselves of the unity that we have. We are family. Now, a couple thoughts come out of his words here. Let me share them with you along these lines. The first one would be, I think he's making it plain here that not everyone can say this. Not everyone can say this. I know there are some who teach what is oftentimes referred to as the universal fatherhood of man or the universal brotherhood of God, that we're all part of the family of God. All mankind is one big happy family. God sitting at the head of the table. There's a lot of people who teach that. That's the teaching that leads some people to put coexist bumper stickers on their cars. If you have one of those on your car, take it off. It's nonsense. It sounds so good. It sounds so kind. It sounds so loving, doesn't it, to say that. We're all one big, happy family. But the problem is it's simply not true. It's not true. Not according to the Bible. Not everyone can call themselves a child of God or a son or a daughter of God. Not everyone can claim to be an heir with Christ. Only... The one trusting Jesus Christ has such a claim, has such a relationship. Jesus taught the same truth in John chapter 8. Why don't you flip over there with me? John chapter 8, and let's read a little bit of what Jesus had to say about this. John chapter 8, verse 31. He was talking here to the Jews, and he reminded them that not all of them were children of God. He said even some of them were rather the children of the devil. John chapter 8. Notice verse number 31. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. 
And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. You see, Jesus made it very plain in that discussion that though only those who live and serve God can claim to be in the family of God. This is important. It's important for us to understand this. And so, so before I go any further, I have to ask this question. Are you a member of the family of God? Maybe the most important question I'll ask all morning. Are you a member of the family? It's interesting how this thought that some are okay and some are not, that some are lost and some are saved, that some are part of the family and some are not, that some are going to heaven and some are going to hell, is interspersed all throughout the book of Romans. We've seen it over and over in just these first eight chapters. It's the dark backdrop of bad news against which the good news of salvation in Christ shines so brightly. Are you a member of the family? And perhaps you're asking this morning, well, how would I know? What must I do to be a part of the family? And I would think that the words Paul used here might help answer that question. He says a couple things. He says that we are children, that we are sons. Romans chapter 8 and verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our, with our spirit that we are children of God. And so we think, well, how does one become a child in a family? A son in a family. And obviously, it's by birth. It's by birth. People become a, a part of a family. By, I have two children, Amy and Joshua. And if I were to ask uh, them, or if they were to ask me, rather, Dad, how did we become part of your family? First of all, I would look at them like they were crazy since they're in their 30s. But if they did ask me that question, the answer would be obvious, wouldn't it? Well, you were born into the family. You were born into it. And, of course, that's the main way that people become part of a family. We're born into it. Jesus talked about this when he talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And you can flip over there if you want. We won't read it this morning. But in John chapter 3, he said, Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. People that are going to be part of the family of God need to be born into it. And Jesus said right there that only being born again would bring him into the family of God. And so I asked that question. Is that true of you? Have you been born again? You see, it would have happened like this. You would have come to a place in your life where you understood you were not part of the family. And you would have come to the realization that Jesus Christ died to bring you into that family. And then you would have asked him for admission into the family. And so I ask, have all of those things occurred in your life? See, if any one of those three things is missing, 
your, your relationship with God is suspect. You're probably not part of the family. It's probably not real. But if you search your experience and all those points are there, then you can rest in this wonderful truth. You've been born again and born into the family. But there's another way people become part of a family, isn't it? Some people are not born into a family. Some people are adopted into a family. And we see Paul use that word here. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I love that word, Abba. Not talking about the goofy singing group. This particular word means Papa. It means Daddy. It's an Aramaic term. We might translate it that way. Paul is saying here, once again, we have this intimate family relationship with God. We can call him Daddy. And in this verse, he seems to be saying that we have that relationship because we've been adopted into the family. And so which is it? Jesus said we must be born again. Paul said we're adopted into the family. So which is right? Well, both are right. Both are right. Jesus said we must be born again. Paul said we are adopted. But adoption had a slightly different meaning in their culture. It referred not so much to an entry point into the family as to an elevation of status within the family. The Greek word is huiothesia, which means to have an installation or placement as a son. One man described it like this. Adoption is related to regeneration or the new birth, but they are not the same thing. Regeneration has to do with our receiving a new life or a new nature. Adoption has to do with our receiving a new status. It was the placing of a person in the position of, a, of an adult son in the family with all the privileges pertaining thereto. That's what it meant in that culture. And this concept of adoption wasn't practiced in the Jewish world. It was a Greek. It was a Roman concept. And who's Paul writing to here? He's writing to the Romans. And so that's the way they would have interpreted what he said. And they would have understood in that culture, adoption signified being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not belong by nature. And is that not exactly what happened to you at salvation? Is that not exactly what happened to all of us? You were born into the family of God, born again when you trusted Christ as your Savior. But not only that, you were adopted. You were given elevated status within that family. You were granted all the rights and privileges of sonship within the family of God. We are family. And that leads to Paul's third truth, which we see in verse number 17. We are heirs. Heirs. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I was reading a commentary on this, and I love, I love the comments from this. I'm just, I'm just going to read this because it, it says it so well. I don't know how I could improve on it. This man said, what a marvelous thing this is, to be an heir of God himself. Sometimes children hope fondly for what they might inherit from their parents, but quite often these very human hopes are disappointing. One of the richest men who ever lived was Cecil Rhodes. He lived from 1853 to 1902. He was an Englishman who emigrated to South Africa for health reasons and there amassed a vast fortune through diamond mining. He died when he was only 49. And in his will, he left most of his riches, not to his family, much to their resentment, but to endow the famous Rhodes Scholarships. Well, there it is, said his brother Arthur when the disappointing news reached him. It seems I shall have to win a scholarship. 
The French writer of the Middle Ages, Francois Rabelais, who was also a Franciscan friar, made the following will. He said, quote, I owe much, I possess nothing, I give the rest to the poor, unquote. How different with God. God owes nothing. He possesses everything, and he gives it all to his children. Is that not an amazing thing to contemplate? Our God, who created all that is, who boldly and truthfully could make statements like he said in Psalm chapter 15, every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. That God gives it all to his children. We are heirs. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. Job chapter 41, Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. Psalm chapter 24, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 8, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Our God, who made all things, sustains all things, possesses all things, gives it freely. And without reservation to his family, to his children, to those adopted sons and daughters, his heirs. And so we who are saved are heirs of God. And joint heirs with Jesus Christ, it says here. Meaning that all that is his by inheritance is also ours. I can't even begin to get my brain around that. Can you? All that belongs to Jesus belongs to you if you are a believer. Now, we need to be careful about this. We're talking primarily about future things. There are some. We would call them health and wealth preachers. There are some like, for example, uh, Joel Osteen, who will tell you that you can have your best life now, which is just simply not true. And that such abundance and wealth are something the Christian can expect in this life. It's not true. Don't listen to those guys. Turn them off. They're not telling you the truth. The inheritance we look forward to is future. We need to understand that. The inheritance is yet to come. We look forward to that. But, oh, what a day that will be when we find all, all that is contained in that truth to be our reality. That if we are children, then heirs and joint heirs of God and with Christ. So then these things, these three things are things that Paul says are true of us now who are believers. He says, number one, we are obligated. We are obligated to live for Him out of gratitude and love and worship. We are family with Him. Because we have been born again, placing us in that family. And we have been adopted, elevated to a position of status within that family. And and we are heirs with Him of all that He has. Christians, in just a few moments, we're going to sing our closing song. And the musicians can be making their way if they'd like. It's our invitation hymn. And almost all of you, almost certainly all of you, will stand there, clutching the back of the chair in front of you, immovable. But you know what? That's kind of sad when we think about this. Every one of us who knows Christ, think about it, who experiences these glorious benefits in Him. Every one of us ought to be willing to say there's at least 10,000 reasons why I ought to say thank you for this. We ought to come and kneel and say thank you, God, for all that I am in Him. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for me, for what you provide for me, for the future you have prepared for me. Thank you for all that we are in you. But it would be even more sad, even more sad than Christians who don't respond. It would be those who are here today and don't know Christ as Savior. 
non-Christians who don't respond to the opportunity to receive Him. I oftentimes wonder, and of course it's easy for me because I've trusted Christ. I have the Holy Spirit within me adding His assurance to all of this. And so I understand it, but uh, it's difficult for me to understand. How, how, how in the world does one say no to the offer of salvation? How does one say no to this? What do you have in your life that is better than what He offers? What could it possibly be? You can trust Him today. You can do it right now. You can receive Christ as your Savior right now. And oh, how I pray that you would. Because if you will, you can join those of us who rejoice in this truth. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ.